Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This year marks the 50th birthday of your favorite Sunday World newspaper. To celebrate, we're looking back over some of the front page stories and the scandals with the big name journalists who made it the People's Paper. So join us to reel in the years over the coming weeks on Crime World. Sunday World is 50, a Crime World special. You wrote a piece for us recently in the newspaper saying one of your more modest, um, your more modest contributions to the Sunday World was the actual title of the paper. Uh, You know, I mean, (laughs) that is probably one of the biggest brands in Ireland over the last few decades. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was back in 1973 and uh, Jerry McGuinness, who was the uh, senior figure in the creation group, uh, decided to start a newspaper and um, he told me how he went along to his uh, bank manager to try and get uh, funding and the bank manager said, I'll give you money to back a horse. Yeah. As for this idea of starting a newspaper, just forget it. And himself and his uh, business partner um, uh, managed to raise the, the money through other means. And then the question arose as to what to call uh, the, the new newspaper. And there was a meeting held and people had come up with various ideas and I remember somebody had suggested uh, Sunday morning. Yeah. And I didn't think that would work. I can imagine phoning up somebody and saying, this is Sunday morning here and some smart ass yes. uh, replying, well, it's Wednesday evening where I am, you know. <laughs> so you I, get fed up listening yeah. to that after a while. <laughs> yeah. So I thought about it overnight and uh, I decided, well, Sunday should be part of the title. And then the news of the world was very popular at the time. And I said, said to myself, well, when I go with Sunday World. Mm. So I came in and gave him that, suggested that title and ultimately he went with that title. It was used, yeah. yeah. And the Sunday morning, of course, later in the day, you'd feel like you were bu- buying an old product. And the whole idea of newspapers is that they're, you're getting them back in the day. People now get all this on their phones and their other devices, but that you were getting something fresh off the newsstands. And it had to last the day, didn't it? The paper would have been bought after mass on a Sunday, largely all around the country. Yes. People were also going to be buying it that evening. 
Uh, and they yes. didn't want to be buying the Sunday morning. It would have felt stale. Uh, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Th- that was another uh, uh, thought. Um, yeah. So anyway, he, he went with that. Uh, he, he may have carried out some market research. I'm not sure. But uh, nowadays, I'm sure that you'd hire a whole team of consultants to consider uh, a name that might appear to the, mm. to the public. And uh, uh, so that's one of my modest claims. Did you get I, paid for that, no? No, I didn't, no. no. <laughs> you got paid enough during over the years, I reckon, Sean. Yeah, yeah. So where did you come out of and why were you at that meeting even for the, the beginning of the Well, I, I'd uh, started in the Irish press uh, in the 60s and uh, had a great time there and uh, spent a short time in the Fleet Street office of the Irish press and was up the north covering the start of the Troubles. And then... Um, I went to a magazine uh, this week edited by by Joe O'Malley. And after a period, uh, that magazine uh, came to an end and uh, the bosses in in creation, uh, Jerry McGuinness and Hugh McLaughlin, decided to start a a new newspaper. So uh, we began working uh, on the new newspaper. So what are, are your memories of that first edition? What was the week like? What were the stories like? And what did it feel like as it came off the printing presses? Uh, well, it's, it's so long ago. Uh, Joe Kennedy was the, was the editor at the time. Uh, Kevin Marin was a very important part of the team. He was the deputy editor, great columnist, great writer. And he, he uh, had a big following. Micheline McCormick was the woman's editor. And it was a very exciting day when it came off the presses. And... Um, uh, the, the minister uh, at the time, um, Keating, um, Labour minister, he, uh, Minister of Industry and Commerce, I think he was, uh, he came in and he symbolically pressed the button to start the, yeah. the presses and there were photographs taken and all of that. And um, I, I can't remember much about the rest of it. Sto- you know. The splash must not have been memorable. Uh, the splash uh, wasn't too bad, but yeah. it wasn't the greatest, I have yeah. to say. You know, it wasn't going to set the world uh, on fire. No, no, yeah. no, no, yeah. no. But uh, and then for a few weeks, we weren't sure if it was going to last or not. Mm. And then there was there was a break-even point, and then ultimately they passed the break-even point. Mm-hmm. So it seemed uh, likely that it was there to stay. You know, stay. at least for the foreseeable future, you know. And then it gradually built up uh, circulation uh, over the years. Yeah. Now, it was a bit racy. It was, um, you know, it was a bit controversial, I suppose. Mm. And, um, but it sort of seems to me to have just settled in to part and parcel of Ireland. Well, it it settled in uh, very well. And it was kind of like a campaigning newspaper as well. And it was the years before Liveline, and you get calls from uh, people all over Ireland about their local problems uh, and so forth. And uh, so many of them you couldn't do anything uh, about, you mm-hmm. know. But but from time to time there were good stories there that you that you could follow up on. You were sitting on the news desk, is that right? No, um, no not Liam McGowan uh, was uh, the, the first news editor. Right. He, he was a real veteran. Um, he had uh, he had a Republican past. He had been in on Fublucht in the 1930s, I think. Um, and then he was in the Irish press. 
And he was famed for the story he, he covered about the Tatey Hokers from Ackle Island who uh, went to Scotland and were burned when their huts uh, uh, went on fire. And um, it, it was said that uh, Fleet Street uh, reporters were going down and say, uh, what happened, mate? <laughs> and and these people could not relate to these... Uh, right. Uh, 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 Foreigners. And, and Liam McGowan is said to have gone in and said, many were Irish speakers, and yeah. he said, Cotaharla, uh, what happened? And he, he, he got the whole story. And apparently they weren't going to send them, except that the guy who would, they, whom they would normally send wasn't available, so they sent Liam, and, uh, Liam instead. But Liam was, incidentally, a native Irish speaker. He came from uh, Valencia Island, you know. So he had, um, he was a good pair of hands on the news oh, yeah, desk, obviously. Yeah, now yeah, you you yeah. would end up... And, and he was a great, a marvellous uh, writer as well. Yeah. And he didn't have to agonise when he was writing a column. Yeah. It just flowed out, you know. So you'd end up on the news desk yourself for many, many Eventually, years. Eventually, yeah. And um, mm. we'll get to that later. Mm. But in the meantime, um, so I think I know it all when it comes to cocaine, but I thought one of the first busts or the first kind of bales of cocaine only started rolling into our shores in the 80s. But I'm wrong. You uh, have a, well, an earlier the, tale. Yeah, in the mid-70s, there was a, a rather remarkable development. Uh, two guys of Hispanic uh, background were arrested by the drug squad. The drug squad at that time was headed by Ginny Mullins, a very astute policeman, mm. and for, for whom I personally had a very high regard. Um, I, I, I thought he had a very good social conscience. He's prepared to talk to uh, community groups and so forth. And they also had their ear to the ground. They knew what was happening. And uh, so... Uh, Two guys came into Dublin. Um, they, they said they were from uh, Madrid. Uh, some cocaine was seized. I don't think it was a huge seizure, but I, I thought this was a very interesting development. And um, I can't remember the sequence of events, but I must have phoned the DEA, the, drug, the American Drugs yeah, Enforcement yeah. Agency, to find out uh, what the background was uh, to cocaine, about the cocaine trafficking. And I happened to speak to this guy. It must have been in, in the American Embassy in London. Yeah. I, I reckon that's where I must have uh, talked to him. And he said, oh, yeah. He says, I, was into, I, I was, went into Mount Joy and saw those guys. And I, I, uh, I recognized them as people uh, who are of interest to us. Now, I can't remember the term that he used, uh, but obviously he regarded these as uh, people who were on their radar, so to speak. And these were likely Colombians then, uh, rather than I Spanish. think I, I have a vague memory of Peru being mentioned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, uh, these were cartel men if they were on the radar. Possibly, of po possibly. So yeah. that moment, I mean, that yeah. idea, that's pure journalism, isn't it? Just going that extra step to just check something, to just exactly. dance your arm. Yeah. And all of a sudden you have that one nugget of information that yeah. transforms a story from something ordinary into something extraordinary. That's very true. And and sometimes like it pays to make the extra phone call, go the extra mm -hmm. mile. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And very often you make these phone calls and nothing happens, but occasionally you, you strike lucky. Yeah. And, and that was the score with, uh, in this situation. And um, so the two guys were given bail uh, and then they just disappeared. 
and we're never seen never again. Never seen or heard yeah, again. Never seen or heard again. And the case was disposed of at the court, so it, it would be no longer sub judice. Yeah. And well, uh, I wouldn't have thought so, but anyway, uh, I, I wrote a story uh, about that. You know. Now I hope I'm not catching you off guard on this, but um, we were talking beforehand. I was saying to you, I thought the sort of the first cocaine baron, as such, or cowboy, whatever you call him, was Eamon Kelly who was jailed in the very early 90s after he was caught in a plot to import cocaine from Miami, if I'm right. He had travelled out to Miami, I think, and he'd met an Irish guy out there and they had been, they'd used a mule to transport it on a plane and Mm. they were caught in at the Burlington or something like that. That's right. I I don't know if Kelly travelled out to Miami, but anyway, uh, this, uh, a Cuban lady uh, living in Miami uh, came into Dublin Airport and she had, uh, I'm not sure if one can say this, but she was quite a, a big lady mm-hmm. and it was discovered she had bales of cocaine uh, strapped to her body right. underneath her clothes. And she was arrested and also arrested was Eamon Kelly yeah. and a man called Frank Condlin. And... I had known about Frank Conlon because I'd been in Miami a couple of years before that, following up a couple of stories. And this what sort guy, of stories were you following up in well, Miami? Well, I, 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 I was... Uh, Sounds very jet Um I, I, I was inquiring into the arms business right. or a possible book. Mm-hmm. The book never materialized. Mm. But a guy... And then there was another story uh, about sanctions busting that I was doing for the paper as well to do with Iran. And Erling is, not Erling is directly, but right. uh, another company. But you had kind of come across this name, Conlon, from By those chance. inquiries, or he had come into your radar slightly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was talking to this guy who was in the arms business, and he said, you should talk to this, your fellow Irishman who lives mm. down in Miami Beach, a guy called Frank Conlon. And there was a very tight schedule, and I didn't have time to uh, go looking for him. I had to move on elsewhere. Uh, but the name stuck in my mind. Yeah. And um, then uh, sometime later, uh, through another chance, uh, I, I learned from a, a contact in Germany that there was a, a Stasi file on Frank Conlon. And I went to Hamburg and I got the Stasi file. Well, can I ask you how? Well, I, I, I don't want to go into too much detail, <laughs> yeah. but, but this guy had a way of getting yeah. the file and I got the file. And uh, it detailed how he had been doing arms deals um, in East Germany. Um, now, I t- spoke to him afterwards, uh, later uh, later years, and if memory serves me right, he said that he was um, acquiring arms for the Americans who were helping, who were assisting the Afghan Mujahideen who were fighting the Russian invaders. In the early years of the insurgency against the Russians, the CIA were sending in non-attributable weapons, weapons that originated in the East Bloc 
so that it couldn't be tra- traced back to America. To them, yeah, of course. And they were using yeah. uh, cutouts and intermediaries and arms dealers for this. And it would appear that Frank Conlon, who worked for an arms company in London, mm. was w- one of these. He also uh, operated in uh, Romania. He had an office uh, uh, there. So this, uh, Sean, was his, John Francis Conlon's legitimate work, even though it sounds, you know, a bit tricky. He starts off life somewhere in Ireland and ends up working for an arms firm yeah. in the UK, ultimately becomes a dealer between the US and the Mujahideen. Yeah. Um, so he's met some interesting people along the way, gets a gaff in Miami Beach. Yes. And how does he, well, Miami, well, of course, um, is the centre of the uh, cocaine trade. Well, he was arrested um, in Dublin and then he skipped bail and went to England to get a very uh, glamorous girlfriend called Beverly uh, in England. And as Eamon Kelly, the famous Eamon Kelly, who was murdered in 2012, mm. um, but worked as a mentor to many gangland underlings, including Eamon the Don Dunn, as he went to trial and actually got a very lengthy sentence for cocaine trafficking. Him That's and right. that mule lady, as far as I recall, went to trial uh, and they were both jailed. But Conlon goes on the run. Yeah, uh, and the, the the Cuban lady, by the way, uh, got off afterwards on appeal because there was some problem with a search warrant, I think. Right. Uh, so she went back to, uh, I presume, to Miami. An innocent woman. Yeah, and um, so um, so then um, uh, Conan was arrested in England by the British police and it was being held uh, in Brixton Prison pending extradition to Ireland. And um, his girlfriend contacted the paper because we I'd written about him. Yeah. And I went over, she thought it'd be advantageous for him to meet uh, a journalist. So I went over and she brought me into Brixton to, to meet him, you know. I can't recall much about the conversation, quite honestly. Right, but uh, you can recall going into Brixton. Oh, yeah, you? yeah. And then he um, eventually stopped resisting uh, uh, extradition and he was sent back to Ireland. And uh, he appeared in court and he got uh, um, uh, a 10-year sentence with five years suspended. And then with time, I think they took into account the time he spent in prison in England. So he was out uh, fairly quickly. And and I met him after that. Um, uh, uh, Kelly, meanwhile, um, uh, got, I think, 14 years. And he launched a couple of appeals. And one appeal was because uh, he said it emerged that Conlon was an informant for uh, U.S. federal authorities uh, and for the the British uh, uh, police. And uh, so, and and he was claiming uh, through his lawyers that this was not disclosed to him. And that he had been entrapped, essentially. I I think that could have been uh, the argument that would have led to, they would have led to that argument. And was Conlon? That he was I, I, I think uh, Conlon did have mm-hmm. uh, connections there because I established that he was uh, very close to um, uh, a U.S. customs investigator, you know. Mm-hmm. And the idea would be that if there's a big drugs, drugs bust, Conlon would get a, a percentage uh, right. or reward money or something like that. And, you know? you know, we've already or you had already established through your earlier journalism that he would have had a lot of contacts pretty high up in U.S. intelligence if he's the middleman 
Um, he, he wasn't necessarily arms deal. he wasn't necessarily in direct contact with the CIA. The CIA uh, he, he mentioned the name of the guy he was dealing with. I can't remember, um, mm. but uh, th this guy was probably a, a cutout between the arms dealers and the CIA. You know, but I mean, th he had serious been. connections, so yeah. it's not that great a leap to consider that he yeah. was working for the DEA or whoever. Yes, um, I, I think. Uh, I mean, that it, was it, at it a time that the US were very much trying to. Yeah get intel into Pablo Escobar's network. They were concerned that mm. Escobar was mm. looking towards Europe mm. as a new market. Now, mm. as time went on, the Colombians did take over the European market, mm. which is hugely lucrative, and they were able to set the price mm. and the tonnage and, coming. And the other aspect of this is that uh, uh, Conlon uh, was an associate of uh, one of the mercenaries, um, who was who were deployed by or who were hired by the Cali cartel to assassinate uh, Pablo Escobar? Mm. You know they didn't succeed, but it's, that's well documented. Mm. As a, there are books, incredible and, you know, documentaries about that on Conan. Um, and you kept in touch with them up until uh, up, until, up, up until about twenty five years ago, or, or just over twenty years ago. Um, unfortunately, it was a. Uh, it's embarrassing and mixed up over mobile numbers. I, I lost his mobile number and through, um, I, I, I had him on a, my mobile numbers on, on a floppy disk. Is it possible he's still alive? Um, I think it's possible. Yeah, he, he could. Well, he in his 80s now. He was born 1940. Yeah. So he, 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 he could still be alive. But he could be listening. If he's any interest in, in cry, all things crime still, yeah. please yeah. Get in contact and we'll yeah. put you on to Sean. Um, um, the, the, the other guy, uh, the, the, the mercenary uh, fellow, by the way, um, that he was in touch with um, was uh, Dave Tompkins. And they both had an association with um, the famous or notorious Manzer al-Qasar, um, a Syrian-born arms dealer and hashish smuggler. And long story short, uh, Al-Qasar, I think this would have been in, in the 80s, had a big mansion in Marbella. And he um, had a plot to lure two Israeli arms dealers to uh, Amsterdam. And he, and he was going to cooperate with an extremist Palestinian group in having them assassinated. And Conlon found out about this and raised the alarm and basically saved the lives of the two Israelis. And so uh, Alcazar uh, found out that Conlon was the source of the leak. And he asked Dave Tompkins uh, to assassinate uh, Frank Conlon. Right. And, and Tompkins told me that himself. And he says, uh, well, I said to uh, Monzer, he says, um, uh, I regard Frank as a nice sociable fellow. <laughs> and there's no way I'm going to harm him, you know. So he didn't uh, take on the hit, you know. We, we need more guys like yeah. that nowadays. <laughs> um, I should sort of say that, like, your your view of that emerging drugs trade and criminality really was way ahead of your time. And, you know, you were seeing the international stage and where some Irish guys were punching above their weight and where Ireland sat, I mean, where everyone sat organized crime is a global phenomenon. It's not something that can really be understood if you just look inwards to your own country. Mm. And in recent times now, that has become very clear, I think, to everybody when you see the Kinahan mm. cartel 
um, their links into Hezbollah, um, you know, the funding of Hezbollah through drug mm. uh, shipments and money laundering. Mm. Um, your interest in that and why you sort of stood, you know, you, you stood a, a head and shoulders above a lot of others in seeing that worldview of crime was because of your interest in arms. And didn't you work for our, where did you get that from? Where did that originate like? Well, um, I, I did a story uh, back in the 80s. Um, it, it, I've almost forgotten the details now, but uh, there was a, um, the Syrians were buying uh, this equipment from Israel, from basically Israeli-made equipment, which they needed for their scientific uh, uh, department in mm. Damascus. And uh, it was being channeled through Dublin um, and it was being passed off as being Irish made. And I have a suspicion that the Syrians knew it was Israeli and that the Israelis knew it was going to Syria. Uh, it was kind of, it wasn't lethal equipment per se, it was dual use equipment. So that sparked my interest in mm -hmm. the covert side of the arms trade. Mm. And then, um, uh, I began to do some articles for uh, Jane's Information Group in the UK. Uh, first of all, I, I decided I'd try and do a book on 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 uh, gun running and on arms stealing around the world. And I spoke to a number of arms stealers. The book on arms stealers didn't materialise, but I used some of that expertise for a book I did in two thousand and five called Gun Runners, and that was about the way that paramilitary groups in Ireland, both loyalist and Republican, uh, acquired uh, weapons from abroad during the years of the Troubles, you know, and it brought in to the, um, the arms crisis. As a young reporter with the Irish press, I was on the, the press gallery on a famous night when Jack Lynch announced the sacking of uh, Hoggy and Bolan, uh, uh, sorry, not uh, Hoggy and uh, Blaney, you know, and so, um, so anyway, I, I, I used some of the research I did for the arms stealing book, which then materialized for the gun runners book published in 2005, you know, mm. and that gave me an interest in, in, in that area. And then I branched out, um, on a It gave you the ability time. as well, I suppose, to see a story for the Sunday world and to make it so special because you have all that background information. You're able to join the dots. You're able to see where yeah. the story sits on the international stage. Mm. Um, you know, I think that's really interesting that you were doing that all the way back then, when mm. now it feels like it's new. Um, yeah. But of course, the Sunday world was not only about traveling to Miami and, mm. you know, um, getting files in Germany on arms dealers. Mm. There was also lots of local stories that happened on the ground here in Ireland that sometimes the international criminals would come to us and many of them were living around the country and you were sent out on the road to track them down and, you know, to confront them, I'm sure, and ask them some questions. So who is memorable in, in, in those kind of... Well, well there's one particular uh, story that really intrigued me and I never uh, managed to get to the bottom of it, but um, around 19, uh, in the early 70s, no, it would have been around mid-70s, um, uh, there was a book on the market about the Quay Twins by John Pearson. And there was a throwaway li uh, line in that uh, about Reggie Quay 
Um, after his wife died, well, it was judged to be a suicide. Um, uh, he was very troubled and was thinking of going to get away from it all. And uh, North Africa was one place was mentioned. And he also considered going to uh, 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 Bantry Bay, where he had bought property. He and Francis Shea, his wife, had bought property. I was Is she Irish? No, she was English, but with a name like Shea, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if she was of Irish descent. And of course, Shea is a popular, or O'Shea is a popular name in Cork and Kerry. Mm. So I decided I'd ring around the estate agents, and I struck lucky with the very first uh, estate agent I phoned. And he said, oh yes, we had uh, Mr. Reggie Cray in here, and Francis Shea. And it was more than a piece of land they, that they bought. Uh, the piece of land was what the, the phrase that the, 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 the writer used in yeah. his book. So I, I immediately jumped in the car and went down to talk to him in more detail. But by the time I arrived, he had totally clamped up and wasn't even available to see me. So I never found out where, where in West Cork Reggie Cray had his piece of land and was there a house on it yeah. I don't know could it be down the Bear Peninsula or the Sheep's Head Peninsula and and what happened to the piece Jordan. of land yeah. I, just, I just never never well you got close out. I mean that I, was I, I, closer I, I, than close. anybody else I got close Lisa confirmed Absolutely. what was in the book you know yeah 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 because yeah. a lot of interesting characters came here and I suppose this was seen especially for UK crooks um it was seen as near home. People yeah. could visit, English speaking. Um, you could hide out. And I think the cops were seen as being very sort of preoccupied with terrorism. And they could uh, also, by the way, so many parts of the countryside were and are full of these very eccentric sort of blow-ins, as they call them, yeah, from exactly. all well, over Europe. One particular blow-in that occurs to me is uh, James uh, Humphreys, and he was uh, uh, a notorious um, uh, uh, gangster, I suppose you'd call him, from uh, operating in Soho. Um, he was involved in the vice trade, involved in pornography and so forth, and, and a little bit of violence here and there. And um, he surfaced in, in Knock Long in County Tipperary around the early 80s. And he had, he was breeding greyhounds, but this seems to have been a cover for an amphetamines factory that he had. And the guards raided the amphetamines factory, but he'd done a runner just a short time before that and went off to Mexico and then America. And I have a recollection that we got an interview with him somewhere over there. Right. I, I, I wasn't directly involved, but it may have been in Mexico, open to correction here. Mm -hmm. and. Um, then himself and his uh, wife, Rusty, they came back to the UK in the late 80s and they uh, began operating brothels and they were both busted and he ultimately died in the early 2000s, I think. Yeah. So he was another example of a guy who found a, a boat hole uh, in Ireland. Unbelievable. And then there was another guy called um, uh, Green. Uh, Mickey Green. Mickey, Mickey yeah. Green. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason how he surfaced was that um, he was driving as Bentley and he broke a red light and, and killed, killed his most unfortunate taxi man. He had a large family and 
uh, he didn't pay much of a penalty for that, you know. Mm. I mean, Mickey Green was one of the biggest cocaine dealers on the planet and had had an incredible life and, you know, was linked to back to the Wembley mob. You think he was a member of the Wembley mob. He had spent time in jail and Mm. he ended up in Spain, in America. He was in Ireland because he was on his, he was in the process of being extradited from the US to France Mm. and the plane stopped off in Shannon in order to refuel. He had an Irish passport up his sleeve and he simply walked off. <laughs> My God. That's how I, he... Uh, I, I wasn't aware of that. There you go. <laughs> That's, That's how he ended up in Ireland <laughs> and uh, stayed here for quite some time until that incident happened. Mm. Um, yeah. Did... Um, were you... Your transition... I mean, what an amazing career on the road and uh, you were obviously a very tenacious journalist who left no stone uncovered and, you know... Sometimes I'm sure that could have been a time-wasting exercise, but also you have these fantastic stories to tell. The transition to the news desk of the Sunday World, which is traditionally a job where you're sort of managing everybody else. And all these Mm. very colourful characters that have always seemed to be drawn to the Sunday World. Mm. Um, Did you sort of like the idea of that or did you feel like you were leaving part of the excitement behind? Well, I suppose there was a mixture of it. Uh, I had some very good people working for me, you know, the top class journalists, you know. Um, Paul Williams came in. Yeah. And uh, I worked with a guy from Fleet Street once and he had this phrase, uh, horses for courses. And uh, Paul uh, came in and he said he wanted to be a security correspondent. So I said, fine. And... Uh, and, and he built it up in fairness to him, you yeah. know, uh, like. It was a different time, time of, yeah. of, of criminality then, really. It was yeah. going into the more organized mm. crime and dangerous. Mm. So, I mean, my role would have been to just give him his head, so to speak. And he, and he, uh, he got great contacts going as well. Um, the 70s, you were saying, was the sort yeah, yeah, of the beginning 70s, of the heroin the, epidemic. The heroin began coming in then, and that was uh, a very uh, bad time for the inner city, you know. And um, the members of the uh, the Dunn family were involved, Larry Dunn in particular. Um, I got to know a little bit uh, Bronco Dunn, and... Um, he was different to the others. He wasn't involved in hard drugs. And I don't think he approved of hard drugs. Um, I don't like the term ordinary decent criminal because there's nothing decent about criminality. But he, um, he, he was not involved, so far as I can see. He was never convicted. And I don't think he was involved in the, in the hard drugs. And um, he was on the run at one stage for, for something. I can't remember what it was. And he, he wrote me a letter and he had a certain way with words and it was headlined, Christy Dunn on the run. And uh, um, he was jailed for a tiger kidnapping that happened in the early 90s, but he always protested uh, his innocence. You Still know? is, would you believe? Uh, so, yeah, uh, so I say. And I remember one occasion he showed me a guard intelligence file. I don't know how he could, could have got his hands on this. There are pictures of all the members of the Dunn um, family who were involved in crime. Mm. 
and details of their convictions and stuff, and members of another family related to the Duns. And I still don't know. He didn't say how he got that. I still don't know how he mm. got his hands on that, you know. Sean, when did you retire? I retired in 2009. I was political correspondent or political editor, of course. as I call it, in, in, in my the, final years there. From in about, the final, what, five years? Uh, no, no, it was about from late 90s, I think, right. up until 2009 when I uh, retired. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. did you love it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, it was a, a totally different and, and got to know uh, uh, a lot of the politicians, you know, yeah. uh, based in Linster House a lot of the time. And um, uh, w- w- one of the stories I, I did as a political correspondent, um, I was told about the night that um, Charlie Hawley was born, that this man, um, he was in the Free State Army, he was a colleague of Charlie's father, who was also in the Free State Army. They were based down in County Mayo. And um, so uh, I tracked down this man. He was uh, quite elderly, he must have been in his 90s at this stage. He lived to be over 100, uh, Sean Clancy, left and crying Sean Clancy. And he described um, how he was playing cards with Charlie's father and uh, a few other people uh, in the house. And uh, Mrs. Uh, Hawhey was ex- expecting a, a baby upstairs. And the midwife arrived and the maid came in and, they, and she said um, that it might be best to abandon the card game as Mrs. Bur- Hawhey was giving birth uh, upstairs. And then he said, he used almost biblical language. He said, the next day we heard the marvelous news that a boy had been born and that his name would be Cottle. And in fact, older people used to refer to Charlie Hawhey as Cottle. Yeah. Liam McGowan, for instance, the first news editor in the world, when he would phone Charlie Hawhey, he'd call him Cottle. And he'd say, Cottle, Alana, uh, Cottle, my baby. It's like, what you know? was that? That was so particularly Irish that people were constantly getting christened one name and then they were the name changed. That's right, yeah. yeah. I mean, my own father, when he died, we mm. only discovered that his name wasn't his name at all. Yeah. That, that and it was, was only it. when he died and he had passports and everything in this I know. sort of faker name. Mm. What was that about? I don't know. Uh, somebody just changed said me, their minds. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, somebody said to me, by the way, that I should send a copy of the uh, article to Charlie Hoy. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. And uh, a few days later, I was sitting out on the plint in Linster House and my mobile phone rang and this uh, rasping voice said, is that Mr. Boyne? Mm. I, I, I thought it was. Uh, and then he said, uh, I said, yes. And then he says, uh, this is Charlie Hoy here. I, I thought it was Paul Williams who was a great mimic. He was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, yes. Who is a great mimic getting it up for me. And then it emerged it really was uh, Charlie Hawley. And, and he says, uh, I want to thank you for the article. Enjoyed reading it. Uh, marvellous man, Sean Clancy, and uh, really must go and see him. And then I said to him, uh, Mr. Hawley, it'd be remiss of me not to ask you about the possibility of an interview I was appearing before the tribunal down in Dublin Castle at the time. Mm. And he says, well, at the moment, I'm doing this big interview down in Dublin Castle, but come back to me at a later stage, you know. So unfortunately, the the interview never materialized, you know. So do you still think like a journalist? Yes, it's it's hard to to shake it off. And, 
you, so you find yourself thinking in terms of headlines, you know, and <laughs> and I, I must bore my friends because I hear something happened and immediately translate it into a headline, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you always see the potential of things that you, you see the potential of things, but yeah. I'm not involved obviously anymore. Um, it's an awful thing to have that constantly weighing on you, then, isn't it? Imagine not being able to imagine just being able to go through a day or. A conversation without constantly seeing. No, no, no it, it's not really that bad. I, I'm just being, <laughs> being facetious there. But, but it, it's good not to have the demands of a daily deadline that you can relax, that you can, yeah. um, or even a weekly deadline that you can, uh, you know, go for a long walk or mm-hmm. uh, drive out into the country or whatever. You know. Do you still scratch about a bit for stories and? Um, not really. Uh, no, no. So you're telling uh, me if John Francis Conlon hears this, calls me up and asks me for your number, you're not interested? Uh, oh, well, I, I would <laughs> certainly love to talk to him. Yeah. And then I I, 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 I branched out into, into writing, writing books, you know. And yeah. I, I, I did uh, did a couple of books. and um, When was your last book? Uh, well, I, I did a biography of Emmett Dalton. It was um, published by, he was with Michael Collins when Council was killed at Bain de Blois. And um, I did it in a kind of a quasi-academic way. It was published by Irish Academic Press. Uh, I tried to kind of bring some level of uh, academic credibility to it in terms of uh, footnotes for arch- archival footnotes and stuff like that. I did a degree in history and politics many yeah. years ago in UCD. So it, it was reasonably well received. And then um, I did, I came across, uh, when I was doing research for that book in the military archives, I came across um, uh, letters to do with an incident during the War of Independence I'd never heard about, a woman who was disappeared in West Cork called Bridget Noble. So I decided I'd acquire into that. And uh, so that was my follow-up book. Yeah. It was, I did it through Amazon and it's it's an e-book and a, and a paperback. And um, Are you working on anything now? Um, I have a couple of ideas, but nothing no. nothing really definite. You wouldn't take on 50 years of Sunday World? I, I don't. There's <laughs> a lot of work involved. There for somebody. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of research work involved, which might take it to the maybe moment. maybe many t- too many things to hide as well. You yeah, know? well, this is it. You wonder sometimes are the best stories the ones we can't tell exactly. You know, and we've, we've both heard the laws of libel and all that. You know, yeah. yeah. I was only coming in here when you were leaving, and uh, I've had an equally fun time. I have to say, in the Sunday world, it's been a great yeah. place to work. Mm. Something special about it. I've yeah. never heard anybody complain about their, their time in it or their years in it mm. and you were very well respected and still spoken about oh thank you um, yeah. very much so everybody always talks about you with great kindness uh, when you were on the desk all the help that you gave people the advice and sometimes when you're out in the road trying to find a story maybe it's in your head or you already have it sometimes mm. you can't see that and it's a good news editor who just shows you the light mm. Um so I think Sean Boyne for the moment thank you very much thank you very much Nicola enjoy the interview thanks a lot great would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro take the Sunday world your daily dose of what's going on 
Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.